Hi, friends. Welcome to Bar of the Conference. I'm your host, Derek Scott III. Today's episode is with Reverend Dr. Jean Hawkshurst. Jean is an elder in the Kentucky Annual Conference. She currently serves as an ecumenical staff officer for the United Methodist Council of Bishops. Jean is passionate about Christian unity, and she believes that ecumenical relationships are core to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and especially a United Methodist. In this interview, Jean shares her journey of being a cradle United Methodist who made her way from a local congregation in the Baltimore Washington Conference to discovering her call to ministry and serving in Kentucky. She helped us understand how the UMC engages our ecumenical relationships and she explains the impact of the last few years on those connections. Jean doesn't just preach this message of Christian unity, she lives it. And with all the things that we talk about in this all too short interview, I think you'll be inspired. So you know what to do. Grab that notebook, that choice beverage, and let's listen to this really great interview with Jean Hawkshurst. Jean Hawkshurst, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> oh, Jean, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Um, you're doing some incredible work um, in your role with the Council of Bishops and in our ecumenical relationships. And I know we'll get there, but that it, it's um, I'm grateful because um, it's just a lot of my work in campus ministry is also um, exploring and and working with other groups, other faith traditions. Um, and, and so there's just this um, affinity I have towards what you do and even your Facebook posts that you make. And, and just and I'm just so grateful for what you're doing on behalf of the United Methodist Church and really excited to hear your story. Um, and so I usually just start uh, kind of at the beginning. I asked my guests um, how they became United Methodist Christians, how God conveniently brought them into the United Methodist Church? Right. It's a great question. And, and I am really grateful for your ministry, too, and, and glad to be here with you today. Um, so I I am one of those cradle United Methodists. I uh, shout out to Centenary United Methodist Church in Shadyside, Maryland. Come on. Who, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, they raised me in the faith. And I was one of those kids rolling under the pews and um, they taught me and corrected me and baptized and confirmed me and still have a great love for that particular church, even if I don't get to see them very often. But uh, so, yeah, so I grew up in the faith. There were actually six little Hawkshursts running around uh, with uh, with two sets of parents running around the church for several years. And were your parents... Um deeply involved in the life of that congregation? Um, My mom was, yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And Reverend Ed DeLong, who I think retired not too long ago, um, was our beloved pastor. And I think my mom and my Aunt Mary worked pretty closely with him on several things. Yeah. And so in what ways 
did that sort of was that modeling for you like being a part of the church or um and, and I guess I kind of asked from this place you know my family was deeply engaged in the life of the church, mostly the women. Um, mm -hmm. And and that just, that set the tone for literally how I grew up and mm -hmm. the life that I was going to end up living. Um, and so I'm just curious, like, it, was your mom's involvement, your aunt's involvement, sort of that created that environment by which mm -hmm. you, be, you know, the church would become more than just this one place that we go during the week. But I assume it became a special place for you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, um, we were going to church on Sunday, period. And I was going to wear a dress, period. <laughs> so okay. yeah, that, yeah. that was the way it was. Mm -hmm. And for brownies and for Girl Scouts and for community meetings. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, of course, I didn't know it at the time, but it was definitely forming me as a Christian human being. Um, you know, there comes a time during confirmation, and then I think again, as we get older, that you have to choose whether or not that is who you actually are. And there was a time when I had to make that choice, but I had a very solid foundation. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that space where you begin to make that choice that the church would be a space for you, um, that Christianity would be a home for you? Um. Yeah, um, so it started in college, I guess. There were a, a couple groups of friends I had at the University of Richmond in Virginia who were very uh, faithful people and at my age, faithful people and showed that way to me in a couple different ways, which was also a part of my ecumenical journey because some of them were um, Baptist and some of them were Methodist, and some of them were Pentecostal. And it was a huge blessing for me to get to hear different ways of being with Jesus in the world. So I think that's where it started. And then after I graduated from college, um, I, I went off and I was a little hotel manager, um, but actually driving to work one day, I had this overwhelming sense that God was present with me in that vehicle, you know, not not in a weird way, but just like filling way and yeah, yeah. Um, saying to me, not, oh, go be a pastor, but that I needed to go and learn more about my faith so that I could better share it and better live as a Christian being in this world. And that made all the difference in the world. Um, it took me two years, but I did get to seminary. And, and from there, the call evolved. So I'm, I'm wondering, we're going to get to the call, and I'm really excited about this group of friends, uh, these faithful believers that influenced you in, in college. I'm wondering, were there people along the way that you look back now and say, man, they were modeling um, not just what it means to be a follower of Jesus, but what it it's what it would eventually mean for you to respond to a call to ministry. Were there people who their influence on your life sort of imprinted ministry as a vocation for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yes and no. Um, yes, in that my, my grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor. And so I had that mm. in my family and saw that. Um, mm. 
And as I already mentioned, Ed DeLong, he was a gentle leader, um, loving. And I think that was a model for me. Never had a female clergy person in my life until I got to college and met the Baptist Student Union chaplain, Judy Bailey. And um, I I want her to know that, that her her gentle, competent, loving leadership also put that in me in a way that um, that came back later. Oh, that's great. And that's, I, I hear that often in these interviews, particularly when I'm interviewing female clergy. Um, some of them have influences of other female clergy um, as they're growing up, but many of them, um, it is the example of male clergy, mm-hmm. um, but, there is this thing of not seeing until later in life, seeing other female clergy. That is definitely interesting. Right. Thanks be to God. That's not the case for young women anymore. Yes. Yes. Um, let's keep going on that journey. Um, you, you hear this, this call to explore your faith in more deep ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that takes you to seminary. Where did you, where did you end up going to seminary? Interesting question. Okay. Um, I that's I ended up in Kentucky. I um I I ended up teaching high school math in Kentucky for a couple years, and um and and then I knew that this call call to learn more was growing inside of me. So I wrote letters to two theological institutions in Kentucky that I knew of, Asbury and Lexington Theological Seminary. Asbury never wrote back. And Lexington offered me a full tuition scholarship, and that um, uh, was such a god thing, <laughs> mm. um, because it was definitely Lexington Seminary that that molded me into the kind of faith leader that I think I am today. Yeah, yeah. intentionally ecumenical. What did your parents think? What did Centenary think? about Jean, who was this little girl crawling through the pews at one point. Jean's going to seminary. What, what, were their, what was their response to that? Right, well, um, Jean as a child was so miserably shy that her first grade teacher held up at one of those old tape recorders underneath my mouth to, to and asked me a question and then replayed it and turned up the volume so she could even hear me. Some, um, my mom tells that story all the time. Um, so it, it was a bit of a shock. Um, my grandfather wasn't so sure about the whole women ministry thing um, until I, I, until I did his wife's funeral, my grandma's funeral. And then he's like, oh yeah, she can do this. Um, my, my father and my mother cried through the first sermon they ever heard me preach, <laughs> which was like so distracting. Um, but but um, lots of support, lots of support. Um, n- not being sure why I was doing it, I think, but lots of support and love. Yeah. I told you we'd go where the conversation goes and, and I, I just have a, a thread I wanna kind of pull for a second. How for you, how is 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 family in the sense of family a part of your ministry? And and I and I do mean that in both the the immediate sort of nuclear kind of family, but also even like 
I often talk about the big family of Jesus with my students. And I do think about our relationships. You know, sometimes I say that group of people, they might be the crazy cousins in the family, um, that particular tradition, you know, in in our regard, like, they, and they probably think that we're the crazy cousins. Like, so I'm just curious, like, and it's just a thread, we, we won't belabor it, but I'm just curious, like this family, integrate within how you think about ministry at all? Yeah, very observant of you. Yes, I think so. I do think that the Holy Spirit tends to work in group and that could be called family, that could be called, you know, biological family or or chosen family. But I do think that that's where the spirit likes to move. And, um, and so yeah, I have a very crazy biological family um, that I love very much. Uh, my mom, of course, is United Methodist. My sister raised her family Jewish. So I have a Jewish niece and nephew. Um, I have a brother-in-law who's Buddhist and the kids have ended up um, Baptist and non-denominational. And so we're kind of all over the place. And, and yet there's a, there's a thread of connection in all of it. And, mm. um, and so the answer to your question is yes, absolutely. Well, and you're married to an Episcopal priest. I am, I am. And he recently retired from serving a local congregation and he is now the director of the Center for Deep Green Faith. So Jerry is my husband, Jerry Kappel. Um, he, what he does is teaches congregations and priests particularly about how to incorporate ideas of uh, creation care into the life of the church through liturgy and prayers and sermons. Um, and so he travels around doing that. I'm really glad I asked that question. Okay. <laughs> I'm really, really so. glad. So we'll, we'll get back to the journey here. Um, you're at Lexington, Lexington Theological. Mm -hmm. And is that a United Methodist institution? No, it's Christian Church Disciples of Christ. But when mm -hmm. I was there, United Methodists were the second largest group there. So several of us from Kentucky and around uh, are graduates of Lexington. And so obviously you're experiencing many different expressions of Christian faith along this journey from, you know, through undergrad into seminary, you're literally at a different a different denominations, uh, you know, institution. But you'd become a United Methodist elder. Mm -hmm. Was that just, of course, like, of course, I'm going to be a United Methodist elder. Or was that was that discernment? Was that a journey for you as well? Yeah, and that's the that's the choice part that I was talking about earlier, um, because there are so many different ideas and different ways of being Christian. And if you go to an intentionally ecumenical seminary, you see all of those. And yes, there was a point where I had to decide if I was going to stay United Methodist or become Christian Church Disciples of Christ. And and I am United Methodist to my core. I just am I, the theology who we are, how we do things, it, it's who I am. Um, but yes, I did have to make that clear decision. And was Kentucky a part of that decision or did you think about going back to Maryland? Um, it just seems to me that United Methodism in Kentucky 
and United Methodism in Maryland. Obviously we have commonalities, but <laughs> I do feel like there might be some uniqueness between these two contexts and, 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 and other spaces I'm sure that you encountered along the way. So is there, was there a decision as well with Kentucky? Um, yes, I believe it also was a God thing. Um, I did ask to go back home to the Baltimore Washington Conference, um, but they told me that, I mean, of course I could apply, but it would be probably a one to two year wait before I could be appointed to a church. And so I decided to go ahead and take a church in Kentucky and I have just stayed. And 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 there have been many times when I have felt like I was a square peg in a round hole. Um, but at the same time, I have also found lots of other square pegs in Kentucky. And yeah. um, I have a beautiful community here of people I love very much who would claim to be progressive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about this, those first appointments as a pastor Sure. I served three local congregations. I served at uh, Fairview United Methodist Church in Bowling Green, Kentucky, which was a, a, a small, it was about 150 member church um, outside a, a, a kind of, a, it's a bigger town now than it was then. Um, but it, it was a great congregation and they helped raise me up as well. And I, I was there for three years. And then I got moved to the city to Louisville and served as the associate at what was then the largest United Methodist Church in Kentucky. And I was there for six years. Um, and um, so I did kind of rural and then suburban. And then the last church that I got to serve was Fourth Avenue United Methodist, which um, was a thriving, diverse very urban congregation in downtown Louisville um, and um, loved that church, loved all of them very much. But that one, um, that one felt like the kingdom of God, you know, when you serve communion and, and such a diversity of people come forward. Um, I, I loved that church. Um, and then I was asked to be a district superintendent. So uh, that's my journey, three churches and district superintendent before I started doing my current appointment. And I want to sit in the, the local church space a little bit. Um, how how did they receive Reverend Jean? Um, <laughs> um, so I was the first female in in both my first and third churches. I was not the first associate female. Um, and in in every case, I was the first female DS in the district I had as well. Every time there were some people that were not so sure about a female person, um, and particularly a female person with an East Coast accent and um, sort of sensibilities. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just too dumb or too naive, but I just went in and, and you know, tried to love the people and and all 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 appointments have worked out beautifully. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so people come to understand and appreciate who you are as a leader if 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 they're given the opportunity to do so. <laughs> Did you in those in those appointments 
were you exploring ecumenical relationships mm-hmm. at that point? And, and how did those congregations kind of receive that particular sensibility mm-hmm. um, from you? Yeah, in all three of them. In the first congregation, uh, I served as um, kind of a, a assistant chair, vice chair of our conference, Christian Unity Commission. And we, um, our big gift was to write a curriculum uh, called One in Spirit, One in the Bond of Love is what it was called back then. And we, we wrote this for the Kentucky Annual Conference and it was picked up by the National Council of Churches and made more ecumenical. Um, and so absolutely right from the beginning, I thought that that was important. Um, in my second church, I worked on my doctorate, which was on theological diversity. And so they allowed me to use them as guinea pigs for another curriculum I wrote. And then in, in the third congregation, um, we had we had this beautiful tri-covenant with the, the downtown Catholic cathedral the downtown Episcopal Cathedral, and then our United Methodist Church. And the three bishops were involved and we signed a document saying we were gonna work together. So we did Bible study together. We did Easter vigil together. uh, We did mission projects together. And it it was for a few years there, it was just a thriving ecumenical relationship. So yes, um, I I lived it in in every one of my congregations. So, I'm going to ask this obvious question and I'm going to locate it. Um, so bear with me. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love for you to tell me why ecumenical relationships matter in the life of the church. And I'm specifically interested because there's a mindset in some congregations that like, we're it. We're do. We're doing this. We're bringing the gospel. We've got the right version. And sometimes to get those congregations to work with other United Methodist churches, like they are United Methodist congregations that think they're it. And so to get them to work with another United Methodist congregation, that's its own work. But the idea that then they would work across the Christian family the idea that they would possibly even work outside of the Christian family. It's just like, that's a, those are journeys. <laughs> so why do ecumenical relationships and the ecumenical dialogue, why does it matter mm-hmm. in the life of a local congregation? Mm-hmm. So I want to answer that in two different ways. And, and, and first to say, I think ecumenism, just like anti-racism, xenophobia needs to be taught in every generation. So I think we need to be continually teaching our congregations what it means. And I do believe the second way to answer it, that that Christian unity is core to who we are as Christian beings. I really believe that. If you look at the scriptures, um, you know, Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. Um, First Corinthians 12, the body of Christ Christ and how it works together. Um, Ephesians, breaking down the dividing walls. Galatians, um, there is no Jew nor Greek, nor male, nor female. Um, I, you know, on and I could go on and on and on. It is solidly scriptural that we are 
one in the body of Christ. And, uh, you know, I, I could tell I could get excited about this, um, particularly um, John's gospel, John chapter 17, Jesus's his very last prayer before he was arrested was for his followers and for his followers' followers that they would be one and they would be one so that we wouldn't be hypocritical and the world would be able to believe that God and Jesus were one and called us. And so to, to me, it's, it's, it's core to who we are. And um, it's all about loving each other in the name of Jesus Christ, um, respecting each other, pulling each other in, and and allowing God to work in and among all of us. Um, so it's absolutely core, both to the you know the level of denominations and faith groups, but also to the United Methodist Church that's down the road from the Presbyterian Church and the Baptist Church. We are called to be working together to show that community that Jesus is for real. Hmm. Speak in my language, Reverend. Speak in my <laughs> language. I could also, I mean, you know, our book of discipline mm. is full of foundational statements mm. about United Methodists being, in fact, my, my favorite part of the book of discipline, and here I am geeking out, I understand. Well, you just um, said my favorite part of the book of discipline. <laughs> And I'm like, come on, yes, yes, yes. I know, yeah, what? <laughs> no, there's a section called our theological task. And mm. in that, there's a subsection called, you know, ecumenical commitment. Or, uh, And in there, it tells us that for United Methodists, um, ecumenism is, um, it's not something that we achieve. It's a gift given to us that Christian unity is a gift and ours is simply to receive it and to live it out. And, and that kind of teaching is all through that section. So I, I highly recommend it. <laughs> oh man. So how did the opportunity to be the ecumenical officer for the Council of Bishops, how did that come about? Okay, so I after the three churches, I did serve as the Frankfurt District Superintendent with um, Bishop Lindsey Davis in Kentucky, and I did that for about four years. And then this opportunity uh, came about, and I had previously served on the General Commission on Christian Unity and Interreligious Concerns. I had been, a, you know, Kentucky representative on that for several years. And the, the then general secretary of the commission contacted me and said, you should apply for this associate general secretary position. And so I talked to Bishop Davis and he said, yeah, you know, that kind of is who you are. You should do it. And um, I was I was chosen for the associate general secretary of the commission. Um, and then the commission decided that to be true to our United Methodist theology, um, it really shouldn't be a commission. It should be work led by our bishops. So the whole commission was kind of shut down and a couple of us staff people were retained and we became the staff of the Council of Bishops. So no more commission, now staff. And um, my staff position has evolved to be one of two ecumenical staff officers for the Council of Bishops. So my responsibilities in that role 
are um, kind of multilateral engagements. So the United Methodist Church with groups of other Christians or groups of other religions, like the World Council of Churches and the Global Christian Forum and the World Methodist Council and Religions for Peace and Shoulder to Shoulder and the Parliament of the World's Religions, you know, multi, um, multiple groups. So that's kind of where I help the bishops. Um, and I, I do need to be clear that, that my job now is assisting the bishops in leading us in these ministries. So I do that. And then I also help them give out scholarships and uh, grants, as you know, and um, I do trainings, which I love doing. Um, so I, I help train United Methodists in what it means to be ecumenically and interreligiously engaged. My colleague, the other ecumenical staff officer is Dr. David Field who is South African uh, living in Switzerland, and he does bilateral engagements. So the United Methodist Church talking to the Roman Catholic Church and the United Methodist Church talking to the Episcopal Church. Um, and he also does faith and order things. Um, he, he's the one that, that wrote, our purpose is love and bid our jarring conflict cease. So he helps the bishops um, think theologically. Wow. Oh, wow. Um, so many questions I want to ask. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> what is, to say that you are assisting the bishops in helping them to lead us in, in ecumenical dialogue and our relationships, what does that look like? Mm -hmm. um, so the, our, our book of discipline is very clear that the bishops are to be our leaders in um, ecumenical engagements. Um, it, and it's, you know, when you're looking to choose a bishop, one of the, one of the criteria for choosing a bishop is, um, do they have a passion for Christian unity? Um, and then the, the Book of Discipline is very clear that they are to, to lead us, to shepherd us in that area. So, so that's why the shift happened. And so, I'm no longer an associate general secretary or a general secretary. I am their staff. And, and we're very clear about that, that every bishop is their own ecumenical officer in their area, in their conference. Uh, the bishop is the ecumenical officer. And so I and my colleague are there to assist them. Like if they need resources, if they have a question um, and then it's their ministry that, that we try to help them do to the best of their ability. I'm curious how that looks in our worldwide connection. So you're assisting bishops in Africa. Is that unique to how you assist bishops in the Philippines, if that's even the way that it works? Or is it primarily a U.S. conversation um, yeah, I'm just curious how that how that works across our worldwide connection. I'm glad you asked that because I we have traditionally been way too U.S. focused, and Dr. Field and I are really trying to work with the current ecumenical officer bishop, who is Bishop Sally Dick, to make that broader. Um, 
and I, we're making headway. <laughs> One of the trainings I do is for young adults, and we always have a couple from the African continent, a couple from the Philippines, um, one from Europe. So we always try to bring young adults together when we're teaching them. Mm -hmm. And we um, we continue to try to work with bishops and resource them as possible. It would be my vision, and I'm actually working on writing this out right now because the two new ecumenical officer bishops were just elected. Uh, one of them is Bishop Venner from Germany. Yeah. One will be Bishop uh, Ward from here in the States. Um, so we're working on writing a vision to, to begin a conversation with them. I would love to see us have a, um, a central person in each of the areas where the United Methodist Church lives, like a person in Africa who could be the connector for the Council of Bishops, Ecumenical and Interreligious Ministries there, and a person in the Philippines that would do the same thing, and in Europe that would do the same thing. Um, because we, we don't do as good a job globally as we could. Um, we're trying, but we have a long way to go. Mm. What's the fun part of your work? Oh, I love working with young adults. I do. I love I love the the you might you might stands for United Methodist Ecumenical and Interreligious Training. And there's one called You Might Plunge, which is a two-year commitment for young adults that that we take them to the um, the World Council of Churches headquarters and the European Orthodox headquarters, and we spend a week in Teze, the you know the the ecumenical retreat center for young adults, um, and, and then the next year that same group has to create their own interreligious pilgrimage. So I love that, and and I love the young adult network. You might young adult network, which um, I don't know when this is going to. Uh, be broadcast, but the applications are out now for the next cohort. And um, I stick with those young adults for two years, talking through bunches of different things about ecumenism and interreligious engagement. And I, they give me so much hope and so much joy that um, that ecumenism is alive around our connection, our worldwide connection, and that that they care and that they get it and that they know. Um, and this kind of goes to the question you were asking before, that, that United Methodists in Nigeria need to reach out to other kinds of Methodists in Nigeria, as yeah. well as Pentecostals and mm -hmm. Baptists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Muslims. Um, mm -hmm. and, and they get that. And um, so, yeah, that's my favorite thing. Mm -hmm. Going and, off I, bit, but, <laughs> so. and I get that. I get that. So, to the degree that you want to share, what's the not fun part of the gig? Um, I, I so, you know, there's some politics, and I, I, I would rather just keep my head down and do my job than get involved <laughs> in the politics. But yeah. I know that that's a part of it, and um, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm, I get it. I get it. Let's take a quick break. Okay. So, Jean, um, on this podcast, I usually ask my guests um, their perspectives on the special session in 2019 
and the passing of the traditional plan. And I ask because I really believe that that is one of these markers in our history um, that really kind of represents uh, a catalytic turning point where we remember the church before that moment and then there was the church after that moment. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, were you present at uh, the special session in 2019? Yes, I was not only staff of the Council of Bishops, I was a delegate for Kentucky. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it was uh, an incredibly painful turning point. Mm. Um, yeah. What was your response? We were both sitting on the floor of, of the special session. What was your response to the passage of the traditional plan? Um, initially shock that we would do that, um, but also an overwhelming feeling of brokenness that still, I mean, I don't know about you, but still it, I can get close to tears right now, just thinking about it and remembering it. It felt so not like what I thought God wanted for the United Methodist Church. Um, it felt broken. Mm. When you got up from the special session, well, let me frame it this way. You know, many of us got up from the special session and we had congregations to return to. Um, I had a campus ministry to return to. Um, and we had to somehow communicate to those spaces what happened, what, how we were processing it, whether we agreed with the traditional plan or not. Um, even with my district superintendents that I've interviewed, you know, how they went back to their districts. You went back to our ecumenical relationships. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So what 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 did you what was the message you brought to them um on the other side of the special session? Yeah. Um you're absolutely right. Um, every all our ecumenical partners, and there are many of them, were wondering, you know, what does this mean? What has the United Methodist Church just done? And um, we've worked hard to send them letters and to talk with them and have Zoom meetings, and it's ongoing. It continues. Um, I, I can, in particular, we were scheduled to hopefully approve a full communion relationship with the Episcopal Church in 2020. Uh, that has been postponed and it's not probably, uh, we, we may vote on it in 2024, but the Episcopal Church has decided they probably won't vote on it until 2027 because they wanna find out who we're gonna be. Like who is the United Methodist Church gonna be? And if we're not gonna be, um, in line with who they want to be as a church, they may re rethink the full communion relationship. And that's huge. We've been working on that for years. So um, so there, there's from that end of the spectrum, our pan-Methodist brothers and sisters are also wondering, how is this all going to work out for the United Methodist Church? And what does it mean for our full communion relationships? Um, and then the saddest thing to me is that 
um, some of our churches are being told that, that, you know, they have to make a choice now. You can either be ecumenical partners with the United Methodist Church or you can be ecumenical partners with this new um, breakoff church. And um, at least one church, um, the Methodist Church in Cuba, has decided that they can no longer be partners with us. Um, and that's just heartbreaking. And um, it's a break in the body of Christ that, that we try so hard to put the body together. And then there are these breaks that are happening. And so, yes, this has ripple effects um, across the universal church of Jesus Christ. So obviously after the special session, you know, we had the annual conference season that was in the U.S. that was a reaction to the special session. Um, and then the protocol, COVID, which just disrupted everything. Um, and then we had the launch of the GMC, uh, you know, because it, and some of that's due to the postponement of general conference. Um, and disaffiliations, which so much has happened over the last few years. Um, I'm curious, has that continued to impact our ecumenical relationships? Obviously, the Episcopal Church is not, it, it's waiting to see if they want to be in full communion with us. But, um, have the last few years been heavy on this work of being in dialogue with uh, across the Christian spectrum? Right. It has. Um, it has been heavy. That's a good word to use. Um, on the one hand, uh, because of COVID, uh, we much of what we do is relational. All of what we do is relational. And so suddenly we weren't able to be together. And so um, we became, you know, flat people on screens. And that's hard. It's hard to care for and love and nurture relationships when you can't you can't give somebody a hug, right? Um, but we, you know, we worked through that. And I do have to say that in particular, a few churches have boldly reached out to us and said, um, we're sticking with you. I, I remember, for example, um, Bishop Elizabeth Eaton of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, set up an appointment with Bishop Sally Dick and myself simply to tell us we've been through this, we know how painful this is, and we are sticking with you as, as a full communion partner. Um, mm. The Episcopal Church has done the same. And mm. um, so that kind of thing, we got a letter from the Methodist Church in Italy saying, um, we, we love you, we're sticking oh. with you, hang in there, right? So it's been um, really hard, but also really beautiful at the same time. Oh my. Tell me, this is total aside, but tell me a, a quickly about our connections to other Methodist denominations. I mean, the Methodist Church in Italy, I think that's the first time I've actually heard its name said. Like, what is, what is our relationship across the Methodist side of the family? Sure. So we're a part, we're founding members of the World Methodist Council, over 80 communions, 80 countries, and um, and the United Methodist Church uh, is a very strong part of that 
that group. And so, yeah, we're connected to uh, Methodist churches all over the world through that organization. And then also we have um, Concordat partners. We have four Concordat partners and, and, and that is such a close Wesleyan relationship that they actually send voting delegates to our general conference and we send delegates to their general conference. Um, so that's the Methodist Church of Britain, uh, the Methodist Church of Mexico, the Methodist Church of Puerto Rico, and the Methodist Church of the Caribbean and the Americas. They send voting delegates to our general conference and we send voting delegates to theirs. Then there's the autonomous churches, autonomous affiliated and autonomous united churches. And there's a whole long list of those. And they send delegates to our general conference with voice, but no vote. Um, and so we, you know, we will welcome them at general conference as our Methodist family. And we do try to, to continue to work on those relationships and uh, work with them in, in mission and ministry. And, um, and, and they're having a lot of pressure put on them, particularly the autonomous and affiliate and united churches um, to make a choice. And, and what I'd like to say to them is they don't have to make a choice. You can be, you know, you can be ecumenical partners with us and with other churches as well. That's okay. Um, but yeah. Jean, I'm just going to say we might need to do a, a, a part two um, to, <laughs> to get some of that. Cause that's, um, I mean, just questions about who's going to be in the room. Uh, I think people would love to hear more about that. Um, so let me just ask this question uh, with the last little bit that we have here. What do you think General Conference 24 needs to be about? Um, I think that we need to know that God loves us and that we're okay and that um, we're gonna be okay going forward. Not only are we gonna be okay, we're gonna be great because we are in process of becoming who we're supposed to be. So that's, um, that's what I think needs, it needs to be about. Um, we need to claim who we are ecumenically, claim who we are as a diverse group of Christians, theologically, racially, age-wise, um, ability-wise, just, just claim who we are. Um, and, and I know that um, you also want to ask me about my hope and my vision for the UMC going forward. I and do, so, I do, I do. And so I, I have thought about this and I, I have this image of our United Methodist communion, holy communion, because in the United Methodist Church, it is paramount that the table is open and that the table is open because we believe it's a place where grace can be received from anybody. And we're never going to tell anybody you can't come to the table because we would never tell anybody you can't come get grace from God, right? That's the image I have for our United Methodist Church going forward, that, um, that it is a place where we believe grace happens. And so all people are welcome to come and get some of that grace. And we're going to welcome and we're going to love and we're going to teach and transform the world. So that's my vision for the, the United Methodist Church going forward. And, and I can't wait to be a part of it, honestly. Gene Hawkshurst, we're going to have to do a part <laughs> two because there's so many other things I want to ask you. Um, thank you.
Thank you for your witness, your leadership, your work, um, and continuously calling us back to that John 17, we are one, um, that we may be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Thank you for, for calling us back to that continuously. And thanks for being on the podcast today. No, well, thank you, my friend. It's always wonderful to see you. And thank you for your ministry. You are a blessing. Oh, thank you. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us and see you next time.